Welcome to If It Ain't Baroque Podcast, your friendly history special. We are your hosts, Gemma. Hi. And Natalie. Welcome, or as they would say in early modern English, right trusty and well-beloved, we greet you well. Today, we're exploring the life and death of King Richard III. Actually, today is his birthday. Happy birthday, Richard. Happy birthday. It would have been 571 today. It's also my parents' wedding anniversary, but that went almost as bad as Bosworth. <laughs> for Richard, <laughs> not for, Richard. for Henry. Yeah, <laughs> for Richard, not for Henry. Yeah. <laughs> the first segment is called Who Are You? Richard was born on the 2nd of October, 1452, the 11th and youngest surviving child of Richard III, Duke of York, and Cecily Neville, and he was the fourth surviving son. Both his mother and father were in line to the English throne and major characters in the War of the Roses, which began around his birth. His father and elder brother Edmund were both killed when Richard was only eight years old. His eldest brother Edward would take the throne from Henry VI, creating Richard, Duke of Gloucester, Knight of the Bath and Knight of the Garter. He spent most of his teenage years in Midlam Castle with his education overseen by his cousin Richard Neville, also known as Earl of Warwick, also known as the Kingmaker. Yeah. Depends what side you're on. Warwick would wed his eldest daughter Isabel to George, Duke of Clarence, Richard's brother. This was done without Edward IV's consent. Warwick and Clarence would later rebel against the king twice. Richard stayed loyal to Edward, although did marry Warwick's younger daughter and Neville. George would later be executed, Warwick would die in battle, and Isabel died probably of childbed fever, but some think it was poisoning. I mean, mainly her husband, but... The death of Edward IV created his son Edward V. Richard, as uncle, was named as Edward's protector until the boy king came of age. What happened next would go down as one of the most intriguing mysteries of history. Richard had Edward V's maternal uncle and stepbrother executed. He had Edward declared illegitimate and took the crown for himself. Edward V and his brother Richard were kept in the tower until they disappeared, known down the centuries as the Princes in the Tower. Richard was crowned king on the 9th of July, 1483. His wife, Anne, had one surviving child, Prince Edward. Edward died suddenly in April of 1484. The following March, Anne was dead. Richard was still young in his early 30s and could have remarried and fathered many more heirs. This was not going to happen, though, because Henry Tudor invaded. And at the Battle of Bosworth, Richard III met his demise. And Henry Tudor became Henry VII. And Natalie's about to cry. In that order. In that order. Richard's body was lost to history until 2012. The Richard III Society announced their intention to find and rebury the body. This was led by Philippa Langley. And he was found in a car park. Parking. <laughs> park. King. He puts the king in parking. He puts the king in parking. I love that. I didn't invent that. I saw it somewhere, but I love perpetuating this as a hashtag because it's beautiful. Yeah. He found his final resting place in Leicester Cathedral. Richard's life was overshadowed by the War of the Roses in England. His family, the Yorks, were one of the main protagonists. The Lancasters and his own cousins were at the other end. Richard's life was dominated by this family feud. In modern-day Spain, the Spanish rulers initiated the Spanish Inquisition against the Jewish community. William Caxton introduced the printing press within Richard's lifetime. Pope Innocent VIII issued a papal bill for heretics and witches in Germany to be hunted and prosecuted. And in the Swiss Confederation, 
I love this number. 8,888 witches were prosecuted. I mean, I feel like it would be better if it was like six, but... I was going to say, yeah, the four sixes or the three sixes would have been, you know, the number Much of the better, devil. Yeah. But eight, 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 eight seems almost lucky. Yeah, not, not for them. them. Not for them, no. So that led to 5,417 executions. Also within his lifetime, Orkney and the Shetland Islands were returned to Scotland by Norway as part of Margaret of Denmark's dowry when marrying James III of Scotland. Yay! Good times. Amazing. (laughs) Good for the Scottish, not for the Swiss witches. Well, technically you guys gained Orkney and Shetlands and you lost Berica von Tweed. And mainly thanks to Richard. That's all right. I like the islands better. And now we have a wee segment about his life on stage. So life on stage for Richard III is mainly a bleak one because of a little play written by William Shakespeare entitled The Tragedy of Richard III. One of the main works of art that have been written about him and when you go to a library to to find a book about Richard III or want to see a series or a film about Richard III, the main thing that comes up are the adaptations of William Shakespeare. There are some plays that are historically accurate and are used to conjure up national spirit and everything. And we're going to be covering that in future episodes as well, especially the likes of Henry V, hashtag Agincourt. But the one for Richard III is not so historically accurate. Unfortunately, it has been used to portray the king for 500 years. So Shakespeare gave it a bit of a spin induced with Tudor propaganda, which resulted for the play to be about a slightly different individual. He was still called Richard III. Everyone around him was still called what they were meant to be called. But the nature of the person was significantly altered for dramatic purposes. The spoiler alerts, the way you have it in Bridgerton, say, not a history lesson, did not apply to Shakespeare because he was interested in a good story as opposed to actually telling how things were. That led to people believing for half a millennium that was, in fact, the more or less true representation of Richard. It's interesting because the same kind of a thing happened with Macbeth, because Macbeth is a real king. He's a real Scottish king. Yes. And yes. he's a completely different character in Shakespeare than he was in real life. Nobody thinks differently of Macbeth because we know it's all fiction because, I mean, you have witches in there for God's sake. <laughs> so you're saying if we put witches in the beginning of Richard... People would be like, all right, okay, it's fiction. I think it's because Macbeth was a very, very, very long time ago compared yeah. to Richard. It was obviously a long time ago, but um, it's more recent. It's more well known the yeah. Henry V is more well known Richard III so we just not as obviously but as a nation and other countries they just kind of assume that's the history when it comes to Shakespeare when it's the fiction I mean obviously he had to go with you know the ideology of the day and if you know the ideology of the Tudors is that Richard III sucked then then this is what he would be perpetuating which is quite funny because that's the same I feel this is the same with historical fiction writers today because historical fiction writers today not not specifically with Richard but their narrative with some women who have maybe been written as malicious in the past they're now heroines that kind of thing it's just because we're into feminism
feminism and stuff right now, they, they've switched it to what's popular today. Yes. It's kind of, yeah, it's, history is a part of a larger topic, but history is, it's there, it's fact. They can take, if you're a writer, you can take whatever you want. You can twist it any way you want and kind of cover it with the name of fiction and say, well, this is for entertainment purposes. Yeah, exactly. Films that TV shows have been doing for years. And you say, mm. we don't need the, the, you know, not the trigger warning, but it's kind of the warning about the fact that it's drama because obviously it is. And again, some people believe that the animated film Anastasia was based on real events. Unfortunately, the warnings, the kind of the accompanying materials. <laughs> the drawings didn't give it away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is there any animation with Richard the Third on it? Yes. Is there? Yes. You can hold on to your chair, boys and girls, because mm. Shakespearean villain Richard the Third appears as Scar in The Lion King. Oh, so he does. So he does. I mean, yes, it's cute fluffy lions with Elton John songs and obviously Hans Zimmer's score and it's killing you <laughs> and there aren't enough tears for you to cry at various moments but that's why it's again Shakespeare is so good mm. and this was going to be my next point but it's okay we'll discover it here the original 1994 animated film by Disney that is amalgamation of several Shakespeare plays including Hamlet i.e. Simba himself then you have Henry the Fourth. I don't remember which part, but I think potentially part two. Basically, the bit where the prince runs away from home and finds kind of drunken companions and tries to forget that he's a prince and tries to enjoy the <laughs> wayward life in the East Cheap of London, which in this case was Hakuna Matata style. And you have the main villain, which is. Richard III. And I don't know if they did it first or the other one did it first, but it came out a year before Ian McKellen's Richard III, which basically took Shakespeare's Richard III story and adapted it so it would be the 1930s. And of course, he represented sort of a version of Hitler. So you have this in both of the places, the kind of this uh, Hitler evoking of him, because mm. you have the, the be prepared when they're all marching and he's, yep. this is, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> this Nazi. needs German subtitles. Yeah. <laughs> Schnell. <laughs> And you have it in the Ian McKellen film, which is brilliant, by the way. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm trying to every time forget the real Richard III in his story. I'm just focusing on the how brilliant the storytelling and the mm -hmm. uh, filmmaking of it is. But it's a brilliant, brilliant film with lots of stars. You have Annette Benning as Elizabeth Woodville. You mm -hmm. have Robert Downey Jr. as Anthony Woodville. You have Dominic West as the future Henry VII, for God's sakes. And obviously Ian McKellen himself. And then Kristen Scott Thomas That's as yes. Anne Neville as well. And Maggie Smith as the kind of Dowager Duchess of York, if I remember correctly. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal film. So I don't know which one was first, but definitely the fact that they could take the whole tyranny and make yeah. an kind of anti-Hitler film. I mean, even if you're not a massive fan of Richard, that's taking it too far. Of all the ways that you can, you know, portray someone's life on screen, this is, or on stage, this is probably the worst one. Again, next to Macbeth, of course. Because they're so genius and fantastically written, they endured the test of time and they're mm -hmm. still performed and they still work 
and the lines from there now is the winter of our discontent a horse a horse my kingdom for a horse they're so brilliant that they're still kind of bestsellers so to speak blockbusters the richard quote you just said out of shakespeare that's always in a pub quiz drives me insane he did not say that who, who was there writing that down oh i shakespeare <laughs> it's the same as let them eat cake yeah let them wear a crown sure it's a brilliant writing by Shakespeare that it propelled Richard to the kind of super infamy throughout time. And because of Tudor propaganda, which already is installed in the play and was historically accurate, that perpetuated till recent times when, of course, you have the Richard III Society that tried to, to... They've been trying to turn things around since at least the 30s, if not earlier. Obviously, recently with the finding of his body, of his um, skeleton, sorry, and everything. And it's slowly, slowly turning things around. If I ever were to be involved in a production of Richard III, the play by Shakespeare, I would probably insist on it being called something else. And I have a perfect name for it. Ricard III. (laughs) Because it would make it slightly more mythical. So it would do the same thing Game of Thrones have done because George R. R. Martin has changed the names from mm-hmm. British history to to make it sound almost as if they are the the names developed differently. And remember when we were talking about Carolines and Charlottes, mm-hmm. so kind of the same thing. Ricard wouldn't be far from what it is because the fans of Richard we call Ricardians. Yeah. They, going back to Latin, so it wouldn't be. It would just be a slight change which would highlight the fact that it's fiction and it's a fictional character and it's a fictional king as opposed to this is what happened verbatim yeah yeah because i think it's a good name but um as a massive tricky all i can think about is pick up we'll give it time we'll give it time it's just (laughs) this is my personal kind of wish because Mm. when people say you know richard the first or edward the fourth or edward the eighth even you think about the real kings actual people actual irl people who had lived and died when you say richard the third unfortunately most people still think oh yes the play and obviously the internet does as well as soon as you look it up it's the place that comes up first libraries etc it takes a long a lot of scrolling on amazon even if you're looking up bios of Richard to scroll through all the Shakespeare books because you put Richard III and the first two pages you get is just the books by Shakespeare in different variations, different editions and different publishing houses and all that. So that's been the the life on stage. Life on screen is very simple for Richard, although it's a little better than the life on stage because obviously you have a lot of recordings of the play as well as the Mm. film adaptations. Most notably of recent memory, we have Benedict Cumberbatch who played Richard III and as we mentioned or will mention in, (laughs) in a future episode, he's actually related to him. He's descended from one of his, uh, from one of Richard's siblings, and Benedict Cumberbatch actually read a poem at Richard's reinterment, which was quite nice. And he was accompanied by Robert Lindsay as well. They were sitting together, which is quite, oh. quite nice. I know that's the bit that they didn't include in the Lost King, but they should have. They <laughs> really should have. Yeah. <laughs> lots and lots of famous actors have played Richard III with various degrees of success, but it mm. is kind of like Hamlet and Romeo and King Lear. So you 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 play him. And of course, 
one of the most important ones, and especially this is important for life on screen, Richard being played by Laurence Olivier. So prior to him making the TV film out of it in 1955, that used to be a stage show. And it's one of the most enduring ones. And there was a, actually an article, Gemma and I found recently, article that highlights the importance of this film to actually TV and cinema history, because this is one of the first times when the soliloquies are delivered breaking the fourth wall. So Laurence Olivier is speaking his, you know, <laughs> I'll prove a villain and all that to the camera, same as Ian McKellen later on. So Laurence Olivier is delivering the words to the lens. And this article was highlighting how it influenced the future kind of generations of TV and film villains, most notably, of course, Kevin Spacey's House of Cards. And it's yeah. notable because up until a certain point, Kevin Spacey was a huge name in London theatre. Mm-hmm. And he had played Richard III. And I think actually, surprisingly, when I first came to London, and I still have this magazine somewhere, Theatre Life, it's called or whatever. Kevin Spacey was in modern clothing. He was on the cover playing Richard III. His portrayal of the lead in House of Cards was also apparently influenced by this villain back in 1955. And it listed many other ones. So apparently as far away as Don Draper from Mad Men, anti-hero villain-ish was also inspired by Laurence Olivier's portrayal of Richard III. Mm. Of course, it's all arguable, but you can see parallels. And you can see parallels in the breaking of the fourth wall Mm. and of anti-heroes plotting and delivering it to the camera. Mm. I personally loved it because the 1955 Laurence Olivier's Richard III, because it had 15th century costumes. Yeah, I liked it. And to me, it reminded me immediately of Sleeping Beauty. Of Disney Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. With the with the with the tall conic mm-hmm. headdresses and everything. It was just immediately I was reminded of that. Another notable on-screen portrayal that still had to do with the Shakespeare's play is a very underrated documentary directed by and starring Al Pacino, which is called, and Philippa Langley would be very impressed, it's called Looking for Richard. Oh. I know. Al Pacino, who apparently is a huge Shakespearean, and you, you, you didn't, I didn't know that. I did not see that one coming. Nope. And you have so many people in this documentary. You have even Alec Baldwin and Winona Ryder, of all people, and many, many more. Yes, yeah, so it's a documentary because he, he made this for something like a very shoestring budget over like mid-90s. And it's a documentary about ascertaining who was the actual Richard III. So he was literally going around asking people, have you heard about Richard III? What do you think about him? And people say, who now? (laughs) And there are sort of the life interpretation of the play as well. So he places it in its proper time. He Mm. plays Richard. Winona Ryder plays Anne Neville. And there are a few scenes that are literally as if this was an actual 
play. In the cutaway bits, you have him going around, pondering. He even goes and visits the globe as it was being built. And yeah, it's a, it's an interesting piece. I think it's about an hour and a half, two hours. And I remember from trivia that it took a lot of editors, many, many, many weeks of editing to narrow it down to that time because it was all footage collected from several years, basically. And you can see Pacino's haircut changing <laughs> throughout time because he was doing it whenever he had time off his films. Yeah. And then, of course, it brings us to the real IRL, Richard. So if you take out the Shakespeare completely and you are left with the real person. So we have the White Queen, the 2013, and the Lost King of 2022. So the White Queen is based on the second part of the Wars of the Roses, second and third, if you like, because it doesn't have the first bit where it's actual Richard, Duke of York going against Margaret of Anjou. It sort of starts when Edward IV becomes king. But of course, the Wars of the Roses had already started at that point. So the character Richard appears... In the very beginning, he's meant to be a very small boy, but he appears to us being a fully grown adult, but that's okay because he's played by an Iron Barnard, who is amazing. Amazing. And Welsh, by the way. If ever there there was a Prince of Wales that deserved this more, that's him. The TV show is based on Philippa Gregory's novels, of course, The White Queen, The Red Queen and The Kingmaker's Daughter. It was the first portrayal of Richard on screen that wasn't Shakespeare, which was revolutionary Mm -hmm. in its own way. And I remember I read that as they were filming, it was the basically August, September 2012. This is the time when they, when the real life archaeologists actually found the skeleton of Richard. So where were you when you found out about Richard? That is, that is not something I can forget. I was working as a runner in a sort of PR post-production agency, which is the same one where a few months later I would meet Kenneth Branagh. Magical moment. So September 2012, I work there. I go for one of the errands. I come back and I'm in reception. And on the wall, you have two TV screens, one for Virgin News, one for Sky News. Hmm. And yes, I come back. I walk into the room to the reception area. I look up and on both of them, they were showing this discovery. You know, the images of everyone who had played Richard, including, yes, Ian McKellen. And of course, tremendously, uh, Laurence Olivier, all of them are kind of uh, mixed in with the other stuff and a bit of footage from Philippa Langley's dig and everything, obviously. And I remember I was just... I was just stupefied. I was just froze. And every single hair on my body stood up. It was just this vibe, literally this vibe Mm. going through me. And this is after that I was kind of bitten by the history bug. And then this comes along, which is once in a lifetime thing. Yeah, It was sort of, you could say, life-changing to a degree. But yeah, that was my real introduction to the real Richard. And almost even more significant portrayal of Richard, the real Richard on screen, is of course in the 2022 film The Lost King with Harry Lloyd as Richard III. The film is based on Philippa Langley's and Michael Jones's book, which was called The King's Grave, The Search for Richard III. And I've written about it several times on my blog. It, it's a brilliant book because it's kind of has that young rose, old rose approach, as I call it, if you borrow sort of terminology from Titanic, because it has the events of Richard's life, the young rose, and then Philippa Langley's 
bug for the digging, if you like. So that's the old rose. And they're kind of intertwined and it's it's a brilliant, brilliant book. So that spent a good decade being in kind of in pre-production and in development, sorry. Finally, it came out last year. And yeah, it's the second time when there's a real Richard sans Shakespeare on screen. Again, mm. it's revolutionary for the character because that guy has suffered enough. I just what? think with finding Richard, right? Because like before Richard was found, everybody on the Richard, the third society side was saying things like, oh, he's only a hunchback and the Shakespeare is Tudor propaganda. He wasn't like that. They're just saying that to make him out a monster, which is obviously very problematic seeing things like that today. And then you did find the skeleton. Okay, he was not as bad as it's portrayed, but he did have scoliosis like Princess Eugenie. Sarah Michelle Geller. Was a disability per se to him. He managed to fight in battles and stuff, so he's all right. The documentary, one of the documentaries that came out after the dig, uh, it highlighted that it wasn't kyphosis, it was scoliosis, so it's sideways, not yeah. kind of up and down. Yeah. And there was a guy on this program who had scoliosis and he had been a, some sort of reenactor for history societies as well. They did kind of a consented experiment on him, if you like. So they trained him for battle. They trained him to how to ride a horse. So how did Richard fare with all the military duties he had to do? Because he had no tiring of doing any of that. And he was a, he was a guy who did fight a lot of battles. And yeah. he won some of them, not Bosworth, but still. Yeah. And they wanted, no, totally. to, yeah, but... they wanted to see how he did. And he actually did well. He said that at the end, the conclusion they reached was that the riding on the horse and carrying of the armor didn't actually inhibit him at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one thing I wanted to say is that you can really see that The Lost King was done thoughtfully. And I love that. First of all, so they tried to recreate the armor that the real Richard would have been wearing. So Tobias Kappel spent many, many a month researching and recreating that, which is hats off big time. Instead of recreating what they've done in films, mm-hmm. but the, what he actually would have worn type scenario. And there was even an exhibition in the Wallace Museum earlier this year and late last year, which I visited one of its last days. And along with the Delaroche paintings of the Princess in the Tower and everything, the famous ones, you also had a couple of plaques about the Olivier performance and the Shakespeare performance in general. And the main thing, the the the, the pièce de résistance, was the armor that Harry Lloyd wore in the film for the scene of the Battle of Bosworth when Philippa runs up to him. And that was on display. And it was one of the few, there were there were some other ones, there were some kind of uh, the Flemish armor from the time as well in another room. But the kind of the main Richard thing was in this room and it was quite nice to have something <laughs> that is not just purely Shakespearean, but sort of develops mm-hmm. it beyond that. Mm-hmm. And since we're mentioning exhibitions a few years ago, so 21, there was a fantastic exhibition in York, which was part of the exhibitions of National Gallery that had paintings of famous people, famous important people, quote unquote, coming home. And then the exhibition is formed around them and their time in their home. So for Richard, it was York. And this is where I got this mug. And it's Richard III coming home. It's quite brilliant. Oh. 
And another thing I have to say, I absolutely admire every time I watch the film, The Lost King. One of the first times we see Richard up close in his crown, waiting for Philippa as an apparition, almost similar to Che in the musical about Evita, Mm. which by the way... John Ashton Hill does compare the lives of the two a little bit in terms of post uh, posthumous fame, which was quite nice in his book about the mythology of Richard. So in The Lost King, one, one of the first times we see Richard, he is shot from an angle that immediately reminds you of the recreated face of Richard's that they have done when they um, they found his skull and then they used modern technology to recreate the face. Mm. And then the angle at which usually that face is portrayed, the kind of the full 3D uh, maquette of his head and um, hair and everything, that is the angle at which they started that shot, which I don't know if it means anything to anyone, but definitely this is what it meant to me. So I was like, oh yeah, the real Richard. Hello, you can almost touch him. So that is Richard on screen. And I really do hope that in the future we'll have more IRL Richards and not the Shakespeare villain, because we need we need that. Mm. And now on to fun facts. So Richard's mother, who was Cicely Neville, in his mother's will, she proudly mentioned being mother to Edward IV, but not Richard. And she left Henry Tudor, his killer, basically, Money and a gold cup. It's obviously thought that she was being very pragmatic doing this because, I mean, she was living under the rule of Henry Tudor at the time of her death and he was clearly not a big Richard fan himself. But then was she maybe just not not a Richard fan? It's hard to know because she's writing in her will. This is my thinking of it anyway. She's writing in her will. Who is she going to offend really? I wouldn't care. If I offended the current king, because I'm about to die anyway. She's about to die, but she has living families. The same as when Anne Boleyn and all those people were dying, were about to be executed. And yes, they, they're they about to die. So what, what does it make difference? But they always said nice things about Henry, even though he obviously did them wrong. But they said nice things so that their families wouldn't suffer. Yeah, but I mean, her family was also Elizabeth of York. Henry was a big fan of Elizabeth of York. (laughs) (laughs) Did he also have a mug with her face? No? (laughs) You would have. (laughs) Uh, To be fair, I don't know that she was supposedly very vocal about the fact that George was her favourite anyway, so... In real life or the... No, actually in real life she was a big fan of her son George was actually quite schemy in the War of the Roses she didn't play a passive part as you would possibly think I know that in height George took after the mother whereas Edward and Richard took after the father hence Mm -hmm. George was actually either the same height or shorter even than Richard but whilst Edward took after the mother in looks and did not look like the father hence those um, rumours Yep. Scandal. George and Richard actually took after the mother. So maybe that's why. Well, mm. imagine you're looking at the mini me. You, you yeah. can't imagine that. You have three. I have a few. The... Four, if you if you count the young one. That's true. Another fun fact is his own father only became Duke of York after, now you will love this, after Henry V felt sorry for him after Agincourt. So his grandfather, Richard's grandfather, had the titles took away from him after being involved in a rebellion. 
all his children and grandchildren should have been removed from the titles and line of succession due to an act of a tender. Yeah, because the uh, Southampton plot that you have on Henry V, that is his, what was it, father or grandfather? Grandfather. Grandfather, yeah. Mm. That's interesting how they're all related. Look at that. They're all related. (laughs) Next fun fact is on his mother's side. Richard III is descendant of Duncan I of Scotland's brother. You will know Duncan the first from a little play called Macbeth that we spoke about earlier, which I think is amazing. Shouldn't we say Scottish play? Scottish play. Oh, spooky. It is October, so it's Halloween month, so it's spooky, That's so true. we can do Scottish yeah. play. Yeah. yeah, Macbeth. Yeah, because if, if MD doesn't know, you're not actually supposed to say Macbeth. Only if you're starring on it. I'm not starring on it, it's fine. So Duncan, the first of Scotland's brother, Mildred, was king of Cumberland. Duncan, as in Duncan from Macbeth, but he's not the Duncan that is portrayed in Macbeth. Again, that's fiction. <laughs> they were talking about the real one. Marriage alliances proposed to Richard included Isabel of Castile, mother of the future Queen Catherine of Aragon. There was also some rumours that he planned on marrying Elizabeth of York, his niece. In fact, evidence shows that he planned a double wedding between himself and Joanna of Portugal and Elizabeth to Manuel, the future king of Portugal. I don't, I don't believe I was saying that he was going to marry Elizabeth of York. Oh yeah, God, no, no, no. Absolutely rubbish. It's literally then shag, marry, kill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. Thanks. Doing that to his family, not so much. Actually, <laughs> but I love the um, the whole Portugal idea because I think some historians suggested that if that had happened, and he remained on the throne, obviously because he would have more kids, etc., people mm-hmm. would follow him into battle and all that. Then England would have connections with the New World. A little faster. Mm. I mean, then again, now we don't always think it's such a great idea, but that would have been accelerated just as a fact. I liked it in The White Queen, but I didn't like it in The White Queen because I thought, nah, don't do that. The whole... Elizabeth of York. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think he would have done that. I, I don't think, think she would have done that. Because yeah, the way they kind of portrayed it is you can absolutely write it off as attention or whatever. And also, even if you invoke the whole excuse, let's put it that way, that they didn't kind of grow up together, that they mm-hmm. literally just now been brought together as adults because he wasn't there when she was growing up. Hell knows if she ever met him. Mm-hmm. She was a girl or whatever, or you know spend that much time in his company because he was in the north it's kind of the excuse that they used on Anne Boleyn and George Boleyn oh but they didn't grow up together come on ew they didn't do it either the same as here so in the show they kind of what I like about it was genius about it is that they kind of touch upon it but they don't really go there which is what happened in real life they really really didn't go there and as soon as he could he said nope nope it's not gonna happen you go away so that this whole thing can dissolve yeah but what they did do in the white princess with jodie comer Mm -hmm. in the sequel they did so they had some definitely in the book but in the show, I think as well, they had some sort of flashbacks, had her reminiscing mm-hmm. about her having so much sex with Richard and he was the love of her life and all that. And this is when you go, 
is this why the show failed? <laughs> yes. I do think it's quite funny, right? Because as, as much as I am on Rich does dies on this point, right? thousand percent, I don't think it happened. I don't think Elizabeth Yacht did that. It's funny how we no, they wouldn't do that. But I mean, the Habsburgs did. They literally did. They kept marrying their nieces and their second cousins. When I was reading the book on the women of the Rothschilds, I did not realise how inbred they are. They're so inbred, it's ridiculous. I couldn't even keep up. I mean, I know royal, you know, the family trees and royal history can be confusing at one point because they aren't a link, right? Especially the Habsburgs. But the Ross has taken it on another level. All these kids married to all these kids and there was no, like, there was no, there was no new blood coming in at all. Do you know why? Because they wanted to keep the money in the family, 100%. No, because they took it on the chin. The, the next segment of our podcast when we discuss people is called You Don't Say Controversy. And in terms of Richard, of course, there is plenty. But the main one is the question that usually is put to him is whether or not he killed the princess in the tower and whether or not he sought the throne. So this is where people's opinions differ, even mine and Gemma's. <laughs> yeah, I think what you do have to remember when it comes to this specific part about the princess in the tower is the fact that nobody's actually right because there is no facts. Everybody's personal opinion at the end of the day until there's concrete evidence to what happened to these princes. Exactly. And the story usually goes, the facts that people do know, and this is mentioned in most documentaries, when Richard declares the, the nephews illegitimate, he locks them away at the tower, then gradually they stop being seen until the time when they are not seen at all. They are presumed dead. And then in the reign of Charles II, there are bones that are found in the White Tower inside a staircase of all, of all places. And then then they are briefly examined in the 1930s and it's concluded that they are of the individuals of appropriate ages of what the princes were. So they, they're locked away at Westminster Abbey and the sign, the plaque on the tomb of whoever that is says basically, yeah, kind of two people probably killed by Richard, mainly killed by Richard. And Elizabeth II didn't permit the the modern testing on these bones to actually, at least to ascertain if these belonged to Edward V and Richard Duke of York, the same way they did with Richard's skeleton. So it's kind of 99.999% accuracy that Richard's skeleton is in fact Richard's skeleton because it didn't come with a tag, but just everything possible pointed towards the fact that it was Richard. But no such test was ever done on the, the bones that were found at the tower during Charles II's reign. It's just presumed that it's them, hmm. but it could be anyone. But even if it is them, we just know that it's them. We still won't know what happened. And Philippa Langley, the lady who led the search for Richard's remains is now leading another search. It's called the history's coldest case. And she wants to find what happened to the princes and whether or not Richard is responsible for their fate still is discussed vehemently by historians, amateurs alike, and the opinions differ. And it's curious, and it has been pointed out by some famous historians as well, is that the same fact and the same piece of evidence can be read differently by different parties. This is the most fascinating thing about Richard's reign and his scandal and his the controversy about him. The next segment, as usual, is Where Did You Go Wrong? Legacy and Lessons to Draw. Again, this is Richard, so we're trying to summarize it. The legacy that Richard left, of course, provides ample material 
for fiction writers, mainly one particular historical fiction, the the OG histfic writer, William Shakespeare, and the words crookback, hunchback, and even just the name of the play point squarely at him. That unfortunately is the legacy currently of his reign. Hopefully, with this new movement, the Ricardian movement that's happening, his legacy will improve somewhat and we will be able to point at particular times in his life when he could have made better decisions if that indeed had been possible. Because when the peacemaker dies, leaving two warring factions, a lot of the times it doesn't lead to anything good, which is exactly what happened. But the definitive lack of luck that Richard had is of course the usual predecessor's downfall needs to be maximized in order to justify the newcomer. And sometimes it's treated by history, historians, history amateurs, as almost a single occasion, you know, as in Henry Tudor invented besmirching the person who went before him, but that wasn't new, not then, and it has happened many times since. The least important, let's put it that way, example of it, I actually found in the 20th century when the elder brother of George, Duke of York, had died unexpectedly and the future George V became heir to the throne. So his elder brother, who until then was the the son of the son of Victoria, so to speak, when he died, he kind of almost perished into history. Few people remember about him now. Even the crown has barely mentioned him, <laughs> but they actually did have on, um, in several episodes, but again, in a slightly derogatory way. And this prince who died at the age of, I think, 23, he has posthumously been blamed for being dumb, even though he wasn't. And even he was blamed posthumously at being Jack the Ripper, which again, he wasn't. But George V and kind of that faction had allowed that to happen because they needed to portray that whoever did end up on the throne or as heir to the throne was the better man. So even at the age of constitutional monarchy, where one guy didn't do anything wrong, he just died prematurely, leaving the other one to take the job. And the bride, may we add, Mary of Tech was going to marry Prince Eddie the Duke of Clarence, and then he died and she married the future George V. Always reminds me of um, was it Alexander, the, when his brother died, he married the fiancé. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Precisely. Yes. Yes, exactly. Somebody got my book on him. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, and, and Prince Eddie, his full name was, of course, Albert Victor, because why wouldn't it be? So if this besmirching happens at the end of the 19th century for no other reason than, well, we have to kind of highlight this guy and downplay that guy because we have to be happy about what's happening next and not have people mourn about what is not going to happen, then you can only imagine how that's amplified when this is to do with absolute monarchy. Mm-hmm. And I mean, yes, does it to the same extent with Edward when George VI took over. But at the same time, most of that was true. <laughs> yes. I didn't want to mention his, that specifically because of that. Case, yeah. Most of that was true. Even worse. You you can see how they do that. And I, I, I don't know who's side to take, to be fair. I feel like I'm leaning someday's side, but it's kind of the same with William and Harry. One has to be the villain. Yes. It's like that line that the Crown has a wonderful, the show mm. has a wonderful ability to... Peter Morgan, the writer, he has a wonderful ability to 
summarize some events and bring it into this beautiful screen prose. And there's a bit at the beginning of season three, I think the second episode, Margaretology, where he kind of summarizes these sibling situations and how one of them is very dull and the other one is very exciting, but wrong. Hmm. So he has Elizabeth and Margaret. And then, of course, we immediately kind of in our minds think William Harry. Mm-hmm. And then he even yeah mentions Prince Eddie and George V. And this is when she says, oh, my, my grandfather. And he says, still water or something. <clears throat> and then, of course, he mentions Edward VIII and George VI. Yeah. Exactly. So one of them has to be the hero. One of them has to be the villain. Mm-hmm. And in this case, when it's one guy beating the other one on the battlefield and the guy who won does not have as much of a claim or the gravitas of a king, the same as the other house did, because Richard wasn't just Richard. Richard was the, of the house of York. So they had been there for decades being kingly. And this is actually what Philippa Gregory is emphasizing in the books as well for Henry VII, is that he didn't really fit in. Because yes, he won the battle, etc. But then what comes after? He needed to live a kingly life. That's the predecessor's downfall, history written by the victors. So that's true, how we always speak about history writing itself and re- repeating itself. Sorry, this is a great example of that. Whoever is the victor is going to besmirch the fallen one. And as the Lost King film says, and this is one of their beautiful quotes, that, well, he's not here to defend himself, is he? Hmm. So my kind of perception of Richard, and this brings us to to a close of the serious part of this program, my view of Richard is this, if in summary, this is the way I look at it. In Russian, there are many great phrases. One of them is, if you're doing something right and people think you're doing something wrong, and then you have to defend yourself, but you can't because even the arguments you use to defend yourself that you were in the right, they are seen as you doing the wrong. And this is called proving that you're not a camel. And I feel like with Richard, that is really, really true, given the fact that people think that he's a hunchback. That's what I'm referring to. Oh, right. Okay. Because many years past his death, for 538 years, Richard III has to prove that he's not a camel. This is the way I see his entire situation, his entire afterlife. He has to prove that he's not a blasted camel. (laughs) And it cannot be a better fit between a metaphor and a real life situation. So that is the legacy and the lessons to draw. Now we move on to somewhere to remember Richard by, i.e. the geography. This is where it gets a lot of fun because a lot of these places, especially the ones in London, are on my tours. So please join me for the walking tours, especially the ones in Southwark. They're fun, but naughty London. The links will be in the description of this episode. So, Richard was conceived at Ludlow, under the sign of the Capricorn. He was born at either Fotheringay or Berkhamsted. Some of the historians disagree. Fotheringay is also famous for being the site of the execution of Mary Queen of Scots, who was, of course, a descendant of both Henry VII and Edward IV. Richard spent some of his childhood at Midlam Castle. I've actually visited. It's amazing. Beautiful place. Richard spent some of his adulthood at Warwick Castle as well. Now, Baynard Castle in the city of London, which is kind of in between where Millennium Bridge is now and St. Paul's so in that area, that was the headquarters for the House of York during the Wars of the Roses. And I point at it during my tours. Now, the Palace of Plaisance or the Palace of Greenwich, Palace of Placentia, as it's sometimes called, 
is where the, the younger siblings, so George, Margaret and Richard, would spend some of their time when Edward became king. Because remember, they were children when he became king. That is where the old Royal Naval College is now, along with the Queen's house, of course. Then we have the tower, where he would have been very familiar with it. That's where Henry VI died, where he may or may not have been involved. And that's where the princes disappeared, where he also may or may not have been involved. I'm representing both points of view. I, think that's I love it. it. He also would have been very familiar with the Palace of Westminster. So that's where the Houses of Parliament are now. Outside of London, he was incredibly fond of the city of York, and the city of York is still incredibly fond of him. They still refer to him as Good King Richard, which is quite nice. Outside of the UK, interesting place, Bruges. So the city in modern Belgium, where Richard spent some of his exile. And it's interesting because that's also where they filmed The White Queen. Yeah. I know. Uh, then back to the UK. So you have Clare Castle in Suffolk, which was the headquarters of Cecily, his mother. So he would have been very familiar with it. We have Berwick-upon-Tweed, which we mentioned earlier. And that also is the place that after many times of changing hands, and I mean more than a dozen times in the last few centuries before Richard's life. It changed hands between England and Scotland. And then finally, when Richard was the Lieutenant of the North for Edward, his brother, he had a campaign in Scotland and he won it for England. It has remained in English hands ever since. And Gemma hates me right now and she's... Uh, do you know what? Because I'll tell you, I'm actually all right with it because we got Shetland and Orkney back and possibly Scottish independence a good few years back. A few of the northern counties wanted to come to Scotland if we get independence. They don't want to stay in England. I will come and I don't live in the north. <laughs> You're in London. I don't think London was up for it. <laughs> no, but I am. I'm. If I, if I were asked, I, I would definitely would have voted, honestly. <laughs> then we have Stony Stratford and apparently it's only 60 miles northwest from London. I didn't know that there was much further than that. It's actually near Milton Keynes. So that is, of course, an important place because that's where Edward V met Richard and they together traveled down to London, the rest of the 60 miles. Of course, Richard died at Bosworth Field and buried, we didn't know where until recently, until 11 years ago, and now we know. So he was buried in Greyfriars Church, right next to Leicester's Cathedral. But at that point, he, it was called St. Martin's Church. Next to Leicester Cathedral, we have the Richard III Visitor Center, which includes through the glass the place where they, the trench where they found him. Of course, the remains are gone. As mentioned, they're buried in Leicester Cathedral, <laughs> but uh, with a beautiful um, statue outside. There are always white roses present. And yeah, so it's a beautiful place to visit and they kind of pay a lot of homage to Richard and you can see the copy of his face in 3D and everything. And I think there's even a picture of an iron in there as one of the people who played, who had played Richard. But of course, they include also a lot of the Shakespeare versions, which is kind of, <laughs> yeah, guys, this is not what we're going for here. Okay, this is, this is... <laughs> Stay away from that. <laughs> this is negating my point. <laughs> so yeah. And for me now, Edinburgh is also associated somewhat with Richard because... That is what he would have visited when he was on his Scottish campaigns. And that's also where a lot of The Lost King was filmed. And of course, Berwick-upon-Tweed. So mm. that is the geography. Now we have a little bit for the edutainment. Yep. So there's loads of books for The War of the Roses. <laughs> loads. Alison Mayer has a good 
book on the War of the Roses and the Princess in the Tower. Chris Skidmore has a fantastic book about Richard III called Brother, Protector and King. He also has a book about the Battle of Bosworth. It's a really good book. Dan Jones has a book called The Hollow Crown, The Plantagenets. I think these are quite good ones to read because it gives you the background of the family history kind of a thing because it can be confusing, The War of the Roses. It jumps a lot, so they're, they're good for the background as well. Also, Dan Jones' book on Powers and Thrones doesn't have a lot of Richard in it, but again, it tells you how they got there. It tells you about the world they lived in. It gives you a little bit more perspective on a wider scale. For podcasts, Matt Lewis on Gone Medieval is just essential listening. Essential when it comes to Richard. He has so many episodes on Richard himself, the War of the Roses, the women around Richard. There is an episode about Richard and Shakespeare specifically. Rex Factor, a great podcast. It has an episode on Richard, an episode on his wife Anne. Also, History Extra and Dan Snow's History Hit have loads of podcasts, again, on the War of the Roses, on Richard himself. Not Just the Tudors has a really good episode. I think she, I think she has one on Richard III, but she has a really good episode on the treasures of Lambert Palace. That has uh, his book of hours. It has his book. Borrowed for the reinterment in mm-hmm. 2015 as well. There's so also plenty of documentaries on the War of the Roses and Richard himself. Natalie's a huge fan of Dan Jones's bloody crown that you can find on Channel 5. Richard III and, and Birdbox and Birdbox as well. And Birdbox. Richard III, the King in the Car Park, is available on Channel 4 and Amazon Prime. And YouTube. There yeah. kind of are several. There's a couple with Philippa Langley, then you have mm. Simon Farnaby in one or two, King in the Car Park, New Evidence, sort of in that melee. And then there's one where they take the arena actor Dominic Smee and they make him wear armor and all that. And Tobias Kappel is is present <laughs> as well. He's present. <laughs> Actually, yeah, one of the other ones, I don't know if you're gonna mention that, the from the podcast called Past Matters. And it has an because ep- I Googled it as soon as I left the Wallace Museum. I was literally listening all the way home and I just couldn't couldn't get enough of it. And it was Tobias Kappel talking for a good yeah sort of 30 minutes 40 minutes how he was involved in the actual project originally so he was friends with philippa and then he was involved in the film sort of 10 years later and he was designing the armor for richard and his army for the film the lost king what he actually would wear richard so that's um <laughs> that was that was the 40 minutes i'll never forget sorry richard the third yeah obviously the in terms of reads i would say that the essential ones, of course, Matt Lewis, Matthew Lewis, John Ashton Hill. So he he wrote the mythology of Richard III, which is kind of what we like to do on this podcast. We just kind of talk about people and events in different aspects and just combine it with everything that's relevant from whatever time period. Pop quiz. Pop quiz. Okay, books you would recommend. Do you have one? I'm almost saying this because I have one. Please, please say which one. So, <laughs> How to Kill Your Family by Bella Mackey. It was out in 2021. It is a fiction. I feel like he would really enjoy it. What musical he should watch? What show okay. should he see if he's in the West End? And that, of course, is Wicked because it is an origin story of a famous villain many years past the after the release of the original and it has it has a wonderful line it is the name of the song or the opening line of the song and it goes um no good deed goes unpunished that is applicable to most of the things 
the good things that Richard did for the country in terms of the justice system, printing press, and even if it came to be um, publishing sort of the results of his brother's marriage licenses. So no good deed goes unpunished, literally. Which house would he be sorted to? And I'm going with Gryffindor with part Ravenclaw because he was very brave, too brave even, so brave he got himself killed. And I feel that he would be part Ravenclaw because he would be smart, but yep. he, w- he wasn't smart enough to not get himself killed. Yeah. That is my view of Richard and which house he would be sorted to. Yeah, I think I would agree. I know like people would want to automatically put him in Slytherin. I just, I just don't really see it. I'm a Slytherin. Same. With part Ravenclaw. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We are Slytherin. We should put that on a, the logo. <laughs> we are Slytherin part Ravenclaw and the only thing that he would have shared with us is the Ravenclaw bit Mm. because I am hugely intrigued by him because I'm trying to see his motives for things I definitely wouldn't place him in Slytherin what about a film what film would you recommend The Lion King Oh, do you think you would like it? Yes. My youngest is a massive fan of Scar, by the way. Massive. It's his favourite villain. So you have very talented kids. So they've been (laughs) raised right. And also, see, Scar is a Slytherin. He plots things because he is the, the Shakespeare villain, Richard, is a Slytherin. He's the textbook Slytherin. You, you open Slytherin, you open the Oxford Dictionary, and it's the, the Tudor version of Richard right there. Yeah. But, but not the actual Richard. No. I would recommend him to watch The House of Gucci. I feel like he could identify with a worn family. Why not The Godfather? Let's go with The Godfather. Mm-hmm. The Godfather is a good one. I think that's probably, yeah. It doesn't have Adam Driver, though. Or Jared Leto. Or Lady Gaga. Oh, Jeremy Irons is in it as well. We could recognise <laughs> Oh, yeah, you were Henry IV. How's that going? Um, okay, last Also time. Scar. You were Scar and you yes. were Henry IV. No, he wants to talk that. The House of Gucci, that is his film. <laughs> He'd love it. <laughs> I stick with the Godfather. Yeah. Uh, last question. If you're on Tinder, are you swiping left or right? Right. <laughs> would you? I don't know that I would because I think him being so pious would probably irritate me. It's like that um, Uber Eats ad with Nicola Cochlin. Yes, exactly. When she orders a Georgian man mm-hmm. thinking that it's all about I love you ardently and life is not boiled potatoes. No, she just gets annoyed at how he's yeah. admiring the ankles, he wants the chamber pot, yeah. and he doesn't understand the woman who has a job. Yes, because that, and I suppose that is the thing, I think a lot of these men would irritate the life out of all of us modern women, let's face it. And we would irritate the life out of them, we would not be <laughs> the way they wanted. Yeah, but he's five foot eight. <laughs> I'm very short, so five foot eight would be okay. Mm. It's from the north. There's the accent. It's the it's the mystery. It's not as cute when you're less far north. <laughs> that brings us to the end of Richard's birthday episode. Happy birthday, Richard! Happy birthday! Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of If It Ain't Baroque podcast. Please like, subscribe and share with your friends. Gemma and myself, you can find us on social media. The handle is at If It Ain't Baroque podcast on Instagram. And we have an account on the X of the Twitter where we are at Baroque podcast. And if you'd like to read our blog and find out more, please visit the website ifitaintbaroque.art. 
If you'd like to join me on one of my walking tours, and I have three at the moment, one about the medieval and Tudor monarchs, one about the Georgian and Windsor monarchs, and one about naughty London in Southwark, please join me. The website is reignoflondon.com and there will be links in the description of this episode. Thank you so much and see you next time.